Well, I was excited about coming back this week. I, I'm always excited about coming. But, um, well, first of all, we should give out these. These are now the proper handout. Last week you got a, uh, uh, we had a mistaken handout. The printer printed wrong. So one last time, everybody gets uh, a copy. Uh, share it with someone if you came with someone because we might not have quite enough of the Faith Verses of the Third Zen Patriarch. Uh, I've been reading it as a practice uh, and talking about it with a study buddy every week, one hour, we meet together and talk about one sentence of it for an hour together. So I'm, I'm really very uh, taken with it. And uh, the more I study it, this week I said to her at one point, I said, you know, we keep going from one sentence to the next, moving ahead to say, now we'll talk about this sentence, and now we'll take the next phrase. And the truth is, they're all exactly the same. They're not, they're not the same words, but they all have fundamentally the same meaning. And maybe we'll come to that. As a matter of fact, I made myself a note on the top of this page in which I said, today we'll either, we'll either we've been talking about these faith verses for a couple of weeks, I said, today will either be the, la the uh, one more class on uh, the faith verses or the first of two more classes on the faith verses. Because I'm really, really very taken with it. And because people had homework. Homework is a very... Homework, when you say to a group of people, so did you do the homework, this usually strikes terror because for people from school. Because when the teacher says, okay, everybody take out the homework, and you suddenly realize you forgot to do it, you forgot about it, it's a bad feeling. So how many people, and a lot of people here weren't here last week, so you clearly couldn't have done the homework. How many people were here last week and did the homework? Aha, uh -huh. so we have people, good. One, two, three, four, five, at least six maybe. So the homework was, by the way, the homework was read, all the, read these faith verses of the Third Zen Patriarch, uh, pick out a verse that particularly appeals to you, and uh, will uh, and be uh, be ready to talk for a minute or two about that particular verse. So, how many people have did it, Connie? Wait, one, two, three, four. Maria, ah, going, going. Somebody else said they did it. Maybe somebody else will do it. Okay. I'm going to talk a little bit, and then I'm going to invite those people to talk. And then we'll decide later on if we'll go on with this next week, because I think there's no end, really, to the, this particular discussion. I want to start, because we ended last week talking about uh, having a mind that was not attached to particular uh, uh, beliefs, that, that if you... Uh, we talked about the line, to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. It comes a little bit later, it's not the first line. And, uh, but like the first line, the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. Uh, it's an iteration of that when, when, when we have an opinion and we are absolutely wedded to that opinion. This is the way it could be and it should be, and I can't be happy unless it is. Then the mind is caught in a little bit of a, or a lot, of a turmoil. Uh, I actually told you the story, uh, just as we finished last week, of the Zen master in Providence, who was known for saying, only keep, don't know mind. Somebody asks you a question, you say, I don't know. And when, when I first heard it, uh, you know, I had all kinds of silly thoughts, like some song didn't speak very good English, maybe that was it. But it actually turns out to be an instruction that you can really um, appreciate, I can really appreciate after a while about what we know or what we don't know, and especially about our thoughts. Oh, so I told you that I've been talking about it with my study buddy, and we decided that uh, that all the, all the phrases were the same. 
Did you think that, by the way, the people who studied it? Wouldn't you, couldn't you have made more or less the same point about many of the other sentences? I wanted to start with a, a sort of dramatic, uh, a dramatic uh, contemporary example of uh, only keep, don't know mine, because it happened just yesterday. So I like to make it more modern than Sung Sang that said that 50 years ago or whenever uh, the third Zen patriarch wrote it. To know that we're thinking and to not be attached to our thoughts. Yesterday I was watching, uh, I was watching World Cup soccer. Have you been watching? Who watches? I watch. I really, I really love uh, amazing sport events. Uh, so I watched and I was watching I watched only in retrospect I was thinking about how my thoughts had changed first of all when it starts I'm I'm always moved by opening rituals I'm watching we we do have a big screen TV (laughs) which I mostly watch sports on because that's what I like I like the Olympics. This will be over just in time for the Tour de France, which I watch very religiously. Uh, so I like the beginning ritual. So the beginning ritual is the players all walk out on the field. And they walk out on the field. You see them walking out from wherever they are in their dressing rooms. Everybody is holding the hand of a Brazilian child. So these big guys who are playing soccer are walking out, holding on each side the hand of a of a really a wee child, a seven or eight, maybe nine-year-old, walking out. And it's so touching. And, the, and they are wearing soccer costumes, and so are these children walking out. And maybe they play soccer in their schools or whatever. They, uh, they look like Brazilian children, all of them. They, they, they share a kind of a look. So that I don't think the teams brought them from other places. But here they are. They walk out. They walk out, and then they stand there with all these children on the field, and uh, they played yesterday the Uruguayan national anthem and then the Italian national anthem. And you see these big guys holding these hands and singing national anthem. And you see them mouthing the words. And I was very touched with these little children. These, I figure they're there as big guys are role models. And I'm thinking, this is beautiful teaching people sportsmanship and gamesmanship and uh, good sportsmanship, and I think to myself, this is the way that we should express international rivalry or have conflict or something. This is a wholesome way. All right, if that's part of human nature to have uh, a rivalry with different clans, let's do it this way on a soccer field and shake hands, everybody with everybody, very well mannered. So, those of you who saw the game, We'll know that at a, <laughs> we'll know that at a very unfortunate moment, the principal you know what I'm going to say, right? The principal Uruguayan uh, player, whom they were all counting on to uh, help them win the game, and Uruguay did win the game in uh, clashing with some Italian player, bit him. That, and it not only got caught on the TV, but immediately, because the TV people, the producers, are so equipped, because Mr. Suarez has done that at least on two previous occasions that are on film, in other games, in other places, at other times. They play those on the TV. Uh, so I'm watching this. It's good sportsmanship, right? And, uh, uh, that, and my mind is thinking, you know, people can get just as crazy playing soccer as they can debating whether you are peaches which are hanging over the fence into my yard are my peaches, or they're your peaches because they're on the tree. It's possible to lose your wits about anything. Yeah, I mean, people lose their wits. Anyway, he is, so what's going to happen with Mr. Suarez now is he's not going to play. I don't know whether he's going to not play for the whole tournament or whatever, but I think two games, maybe two months, whatever it is, but this happens, and the point I wanted to tell you, the, the line that caused me to write the whole thing down, is when the game was over, everybody's very excited, and Uruguay is beside itself, and the fans are beside themselves, and you go into the commentator's booth, and they have three commentators who I've come to know, because they're the same people every day, and the main one who gets these two other people who 
asks these two other people. Uh, and he says to the first of the two other commentators, says, uh, um, what do you think of that, what happened there? And he said, genuinely, he said, I don't know what to think. I was thinking, that's such, that was such a, that's, I don't know. I don't know what to think. And I thought that's, that's so, you know, I was really caught by that because you could think, oh, it was terrible, or everybody does it, or, you know, headbutting and they get away with it. There's a lot of things that you could say either in defense or in explanation. I said, I don't know what to think. And I thought, I had just that morning, yesterday morning, received in the mail from one of my friends this particular essay. I'll just read you the beginning of. Many years, this is Wayne Muller, by the way. Maybe you are on Wayne Muller's mailing list. Uh, he is the president of the Institute of the Southwest. Many years ago, I was living in a small second-floor walk-up apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts. One day, my refrigerator stopped working. I still managed to store my food, but I kept it warm rather than cold. When I called the repair shop, they said it would cost $50 just to send someone to look at it. As an impoverished graduate student with little disposable income, I resolved to fix the refrigerator myself. First, I went to the used furniture guy who sold me the refrigerator. Based on my description of what happened, he said it probably needed an electrical part that cost only a few dollars and told me where to buy it. I went to the electrical supply store, and the man behind the counter explained in intricate detail precisely how to take the old part and replace it with the new part. Excited and rather pleased with myself, I headed home with my precious purchase. I managed to install it properly without inflicting further damage to the refrigerator or to me. And when I plugged it in, the refrigerator worked. I couldn't have been more proud. I had fixed my broken refrigerator all by myself. An epitome of American ingenuity and know-how. I was the picture of self-reliance, the Thoreau of my generation. I could take care of myself. Later that day, you can see where this is going? Later that day, as I continued to reflect upon my glorious achievement, a question arose in my mind, who really fixed that refrigerator? Was it really me? Or was it the guy who told me which part to buy and where I could find it? Or was it the man who sold me the part and patiently explained how to fix it? Was it those nameless people in some faraway factory who actually made the part, without which my refrigerator could have never worked again, regardless of how impressive my ingenuity? In, in the end, who fixed the refrigerator? In truth, it's virtually inevitable that we all end up fixing the refrigerator. We are woven so intricately into the fabric of all beings everywhere, so deeply involved in this enormous common web of interconnected life, that the only fear and resistance, that only fear and resistance and the illusion of separateness allow us to imagine that we ever do anything by ourselves. We completely depend on countless others for our everyday for our food, our shelter, our electricity, water, clothing, transportation, for virtually every need we ever have, including care and affection, love, and even life itself. When it's sometimes hard for us to feel that we belong anywhere, often the opposite is equally true. It requires an enormous amount of energy to remain separate from the rest of our human family. Our separateness is a painful fiction. Each of us is necessary. When we isolate and withdraw from humanity through our technologies, our imagined differences, our fear of being hurt and rejected, we actually deny ourselves the very love, comfort, and nurture so readily available for those who love and care for us. Even worse, we deny, we deny our gifts, our wisdom, the fruits of our lives that we have to offer, what we bring to the common table for the common wealth of all. By the way, this is the Institute of the Southwest, and if you like the way Wayne writes, you can just look up his website and get on it, and it doesn't cost anything. He sends out these nice things. Everybody fixed the refrigerator. So the thing is, who bit yesterday? You know, uh, Luis Suarez bit that other guy. But he didn't do it. He learned to play soccer from certain people. He got his genes from certain people. 
he got those excitable genes from his parents. So maybe his father had excitable genes, or his grandfather had a short fuse, his mother had a short fuse. Maybe soccer was the only way that he could get out of a certain kind of a life that he was living and become a star. Is his nervous system responsible for it, or his parents responsible for it? Is the culture responsible for it? You look at the people in the soccer stadium, and I was appreciating them yesterday. They sing at the appropriate time, and they stand at the appropriate time, and they cheer, and they wear the right color clothing so you know who they're cheering for. But every once in a while, you hear about brawls in soccer stadiums and, and second floors of soccer stadiums falling down on the first tier of floor because everybody got too upset about something and stampeded to one end of the stadium. People get out of control sometimes. Is it nervous systems that are, that are the villains? Is it being human that's the villain? Is anybody a villain? Are we all villains and victims? What, what could anybody do about it? Is this just the way things happen? Should Mr. Suarez be sanctioned? Should soccer be changed? Should we not play? You know, it's, it's, I don't know. I thought that, that, I thought that when that commentator asked that person, what do you think? He said, I don't know what to think. I think that's actually a pretty good answer. I don't know what to think. Didn't mean I'm not thinking. I said, I just don't know what to think. It's complex. I also uh, have uh, the book that Kika brought. I'm, I'm, at, I'm trying to find the particular page of it. That's uh, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. I know that it's in Chapter 6 on Patience, where there, um, uh, Shantideva enumerates numerous reasons that might be cited as the cause for people losing their patience and expressing anger. And the one that I remember, which I did not see exactly in that minute that I looked, um, let me see if I can find it. Otherwise, I'll tell you what it says. All right, I'm not finding the exact uh, verse, so I have to. So I'll tell it to you from my memory. I heard this this particular chapter explicated verse by verse by the Dalai Lama in 1993 at a conference in Tucson, Arizona. One chapter, one week, and every day, the whole hotel in Tucson was taken up by I think 2,000 people who were all going to this conference. And every day, morning and afternoon, we would file into this huge auditorium. And His Holiness would come in and sit down. And he would do verse by verse. He would read it in, uh, in, uh, in Tibetan. And then he would uh, make commentary on it. And sometimes, it, partly in, in English and partly in Tibetan, uh, now when I see him, he's mostly doing English, but he was in partly in Tibetan and he had a translator with him. So each verse took a while for him to read and then the translator would translate and then he would make his commentary on it and then the translator would translate the commentary. So it's very, very slow moving through this one chapter. But by and by he started to get the point that the, the thrust of what he was saying is... When we're impatient, um, uh, unwholesome behavior arises. Mostly he talked about anger erupting uh, as a a result of losing one's patience, losing one's temper. And he would say, he would give an example, and one of the examples he said, suppose someone hits you with a stick. And anger arises in you. Should you get angry at the stick? Because actually it was a stick that hurt you. And they would say, no, you know, that, you know, they can't be angry at the stick. You have to be angry at the person who picked up the stick uh, and hit you with it. And say, but, you know, maybe the person who picked up the stick 
had parents. And maybe it was a result of those parents that this particular person picked up the stick. So maybe you should be angry at the parents, not the person who picked up the stick. And in each particular case, what he came back to over and over again is in the end, there are greed and anger and delusion. And they are the culprits. They are the poisons. They are the things that give rise to suffering in the world. Greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind are what give rise to all the, the, all the ways that action happens in the world that turn out to create pain and suffering. And that the only response is patience. And seeing that, that uh, I mean, you stop somebody from hitting you if, they, if you can. Or you think about, you reflect about uh, the karmic uh, uh, fruit of that, what's going to happen to this person. Who even knows about karma in the next life, but the karmic fruit of this person probably doesn't have a lot of friends if he goes around hitting with sticks. So that some way or another to allow your mind to make space to say, this is happening and I don't have to, I don't have to pick it up and be in this. This is not, I, I don't need to do this. And I don't need to go away riled up about it. I had an email exchange since last week. I think it must be since last week. You tell me if I told you before that uh, from time to time I tell you that I sign my emails like Susan Felix does by writing Stay Amazed. I have another friend. Susan signs all of her emails Stay Amazed, which is a very good dictum, I think. I have another friend who has begun to sign her emails on the basis of some conversation we had. Avoid getting riled up. That's the way she said. So that's actually a very good, because there's a million opportunities every day to get riled up. You know, this happened. And it's really like someone throws a gauntlet in the ring. You know, you want to pick up this gauntlet and run with it? Or you want to say... I'm not on this committee. I'm not into picking up gauntlets, you know. I'll just go over to this other ring and not pick. They don't have any gauntlets there to pick up. That you could choose peace. It's an amazing thing. Anyway, maybe by next week, now that I securely have this book, I'll read you some exact verses from it. Because the end of that week of the Dalai Lama painstakingly going through each single verse, all of which had the same... The same light motif, the person does this and this to you, you wait, patience arises, and you figure out, I don't have to see it this way, and I don't have to respond uh, unskillfully. That's like an amazing piece of information. I don't have to respond unskillfully. I don't have to do anything, actually. I can... You know, and even if I have to do something to allow my own mind to settle down... You've really just been hurt. This is what happens sometimes. This is a world where hurt happens. It's not, you don't have to take it personally. It was a very, very um, uh, interesting buildup of energy over the week because in a certain sense, he kept saying the same thing over and over again because every sentence, every verse was a new example. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if the other happens? So you might say, oh, well, it's pretty interesting because different things keep happening. On the other hand, all the answers are the same. You wait, you exercise patience, you say, wait a minute. I don't have to take this personally. I don't have to respond. Could be this, could be that, could be that. Nor do I have to make anybody a villain and remember them with, with enmity because that, of course, pollutes one's own mind. I can go through this. Anyway, at the, 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 the end of that week, when he read the last, when he read the last um, verse, let me see which of the last verses I want to read you. In, in essence, 
a person a person who practices in this way would um, would be so uh, precious that kings would give them anything because they have the greatest they have the greatest power of all. And it said, uh, but what could a gratified king give that it would equal Buddhahood experienced as the result of delighting sentient beings? Anyway, when when His Holiness came to the end and he was up to the last, um, perhaps two verses, and about to read them, he suddenly slumped over in his chair and put his head in his hands and stayed in. All of a sudden, he's sitting up on this throne and he slumps over, and there's 2,000 people sitting there. And in, I, I myself, with my, with my neurology, I don't know what other people are thinking about, but I think, oh dear, what happened to him? First of all, he looked like he had a sudden pang in his head and he's holding it. I think maybe he, had a, maybe he has a sudden headache, maybe, maybe he had a stroke. Why would he suddenly collapse over like that? And then he sat like that, and you could see he was crying a little bit. He was shaking. Everybody sat, 2,000 people sitting quietly. And then he sat up. He was wiping his eyes. And it became clear that he was so touched with the enormity of this lesson. It went on and on and on and on, and it was the same lesson. Nothing in your heart ever but kindness towards all beings. It's the same lesson all the way through, no matter what. Everybody is motivated by everybody, is motivated by everybody. There are no single victims. We are all of us in the same boat. Nobody is a victim and nobody is, a, uh, nobody is, a, is an aggressor. It's just stuff happening. And it's stuff happening because of this and because of that and because of all these connections, and to label anybody or anyone and make them the enemy and to put them out of your heart is to create discord in the world and in your mind. And it, it's the most stunning. Maybe it's the whole of the Buddhist teachings. And how many times has His Holiness done that exegesis of a text? It was not the first time that he worked with that text. You know, how many times had he translated it before? But still, what was moving to me is that it's still equally moving to him. You know, it's the simplest of things to say, but it's possible for a mind to actually get that and hold it there. It's, it's nobody's fault. It is the fault, if you wish, of incarnation. It's the fault of greed, hatred, and delusion. If we all woke up, it would be different. And until then, to hold anybody out of your heart is not good for anybody, not you or anybody else. Don't you find that stunning? I do. But you have to not have any opinion. There's a line in T.S. Eliot in the Four Quartets where it talks also about achieving that kind of mind, where it says you have to give up. I was gone. Costing no less than everything is the line. Every opinion, every view needs to be gone. If you have a view, then you suffer. So it's, it's I, I find it anyway. Well, I'm going to let these other... Well, one more, but then you, we have four people going to teach. Do I want to do these or do I want to wait? Anyway. By the way, I told you that whole story, including how excited I was. Look at this World Cup. Look at this teaching, teaching decency to the whole world. Da, 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 da. Yeah, every opinion that I had up to then, including negative opinions about that particular person if I had them. Every opinion is worthless. It's just, it's just mind chatter. It's just mind chatter. And I, I think that what I am learning from reading Musang's commentary on the faith verses is that mind chatter goes on all the time. But how to recognize it is mind chatter. It's just mind chatter. It's nothing. 
not to take it seriously, not to take it personally, not to believe it. I thought about a story that came to my mind, then we'll hear these other stories. I wanted to tell a contemporary story. I went some years back to New York City and uh, on a visit with my husband, and we went to the street on which, in which, on which still stands a house that we lived in, uh, an apartment on the second floor of a fourplex building. Um, we lived there for a year, in the year directly after we were married until we moved out to the Midwest. And I rang the doorbell, and the woman answered, uh, and I said, I used to live there 50 years ago. She said, come on up. So I come up, and the apartment is in Borough Park in Brooklyn, which is a very, um, it's, a, a, it's a area uh, that has become very heavily and exclusively populated by extremely Orthodox Jews. I am a Jew, and it was a Jewish neighborhood when I lived there. But it was a more middle-of-the-road Jewish neighborhood, like the Jewish neighborhood I grew up in. Now people are, they look more like Amish. People are dressed very modestly. Men have long beards, women have black, uh, uh, and black hats, and women are wearing very modest clothing. And they have very orthodox. They have rebbies who are their heads of communities, who are like, really like, uh, Rinpoche's that very much like in the Tibetan tradition where people have a particular attraction to a certain teacher and they're very orthodox in their lifestyle. One of the things they do is they have very large families because it's part of their belief that that meant to do that. And, and so we were going to go to the neighborhood and since I was going there, I dressed myself in a fairly modest way, not to disguise myself as more... Uh, traditional than I am, but not to offend anybody walking down the street in too modern of an outfit. And I know how to behave in those communities because I've lived for a while in Jerusalem and I know how to do that and be respectful. Anyway, this woman said, come on up, and we went up. And uh, here she is living in my same apartment 50 years later, it's 55 years later. And we talked about all kinds of things. And in the course of the time, she showed us up and down the apartment in this room and that room. I remember she had, uh, she, was, she was widowed, and uh, uh, she said, uh, uh, but the, the living room was lined with bookcases and books that I recognized to be copies of the Talmud and Mishnah and important Jewish holy books that people study. I say, was your husband a, a, a scholar? She said, yes, he was, and he had just died a couple of months before, and I expressed my dismay, I'm sorry, you know. Um, she said, yeah, she said, it's very sad. She said, um, I, think that, um, I think that the doctors missed what he had, and had they found it earlier, they, they might have been able to cure it. But she said, but, you know, th things like that happen. So it was just a plain statement, just like that. And then she took us through the house, and I remember in the back room, in one of the two back bedrooms, here's a bed in one, and in the other bedroom, it's got a treadmill and a television set in front of it, both very modern things, which you might not find in another Orthodox home like that. And she saw that I was looking at them, she said, well, you know, you have to keep up your health, so uh, I walk on the treadmill every day, and I like to see what's going on in the world, so I have a television set, just plain like that. And we were walking down the hall, and she had uh, pictures of uh, her three sons, now grown up, and with their families. And two of those three sons had wives and many children in the picture. And they looked like the people in her neighborhood. They were dressed in that kind of conservative way. And the third picture had her son so-and-so with his family, few children and dressed in a very modern way. And so I looked at this picture and this picture and this picture. And she said, everybody's different. You know, that was all about it. Yeah, everybody's different. Everybody's different. And I like to watch the news and you have to keep up. And so how's your health? She said, my health is great. She said, uh, I take all these vitamins. She showed me all these vitamins that you buy from TV where it's, you know, <laughs> all the supplements, you know. She said, I watch TV. I see all these 
things that you're supposed to, you know, for good for vitality or this or that. I said, you go to a regular doctor? She said, sure, you need everything. I go to a regular doctor, I watch on TV. And um, when we walked back, when we were leaving and we left, uh, my husband said to me, uh, I noticed uh, that you didn't, you told her that we lived here a long time ago and we lived in California and how many children we have, grandchildren. He said, I noticed you didn't tell her uh, about that you're a Buddhist teacher. Why did you, did you avoid that? Did you avoid telling her that? I said, well, first of all, it wasn't necessary to bring it up. It wasn't vital to the conversation. And second of all, I didn't think that I knew anything that she didn't know. You know? People are different. Everybody's different. Things change. Maybe he would have lived if they would have diagnosed it right, but he didn't. You know? You gotta see what's on the news. You gotta take all. You, you know, she was living in war in her world. She was a contented person. I really thought I didn't have anything to. First of all, I don't think you know. I'm trying to be as good as I can be uh, with what I know to learn and what I know about what makes for happiness. But I could uh, I could imagine, and you probably can too, all kinds of scenarios where people disown their sons or daughters because of the partner choice that they make. Anybody here knows anybody who disowned somebody or didn't talk to them or you don't know anybody? I have friends whose in-laws didn't talk to her for 10 years because she was the wrong something for their son. And I think so much, and when, you know what, this is the last corrective and then I'm gonna let other people, I realized when I was writing this this morning and making these notes for myself, when I heard that from my friend, my friend who had an African-American mother and a European father whose husband's family did not talk to her for years after they were married. Uh, when I heard about that, I had bad feelings on those people. Mm. I re thinking about this morning, I thought I had bad feelings on them but they learned that from somebody, and they learned that from somebody. And so their, their view was not their fault. Their view was their view. But, you know, we have views because of who knows how many things. How dear we hold our parents, and how much we want to continue what they want. Uh, I was doing something recently, and I was thinking to myself, I had the bizarre thought, it's good my mother is not here. My mother has been gone more than 50 years, but I am still evaluating <laughs> whatever I'm doing <laughs> in terms of what would my mother have thought about it. It's got very long-reaching tentacles, those what would my mother have thought. You know? and probably more than what would Jesus say or what would the Buddha say. What would my mother say? <laughs> that really counts. <laughs> okay. That's enough. That was, my, that was my line for today, to know the truth, only cherish opinions. Who wants to go next? Connie, did you want to go next? Sure. Okay. Come up and take my, my microphone, though. Is that good? It's very official. Um, <laughs> the bit in the um, text that spoke to me was this part that says, live neither in the entanglements of outer things nor in inner feelings of emptiness. And of course, my mind wants to get entangled in a whole lot of outer things. Um, and I noticed in this whole text, there's a lot of talk about um, don't go too far this way, you know, stay on the you know, center way. There's sort of a, an idea about shepherding of our thoughts into some central, sort of neutral sort of way. And so I kind of free associated a little bit about that. And I thought about when you're sailing. And when you're sailing, of course, it's not like in a car where you just kind of hold the wheel and kind of go straight. But when you're sailing, if you're at the wheel or at the tiller, you're always adjusting. You're always looking at your compass and you're always making adjustments. And I thought, well, if you're going to just if we're talking about discernment and making judgments and having strong opinions, you also have to make an, uh, an opinion about whether you are forming an opinion. So it's all about discernment, and it's all very kind of um, 
fuzzy in my mind about this, but I, I like this image of kind of adjusting the course as you go, as wind and waves and whatnot are changing the course of a sailboat. You're always hand on the tiller and going for the center way. Very, very nice. Thank you very much, you know. we As you were saying that, I was thinking I, it, uh, the image of always making adjustments is I think we're all in the life, just from moment to moment, we're making adjustments to make ourselves comfortable or to try to keep ourselves comfortable and balance that with uh, not not tightening the mind in some way. So I think it's one long adjustment. Um, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Satchitananda, Swami Satchitananda, Thirty or forty years ago, whose disciples uh, engineered a, a, a big poster of him standing. This was before uh, Photoshop, too, so I don't know how they did this. But anyway, it was a picture of Satchitananda standing in, you know, his yogic kind of an outfit on a surfboard, you know, and and surfing in on a wave, and it said something like, uh, "Life is challenging. You surf the wave," something like that, but. Uh, thank you very, very much. I like that image very much. Who else? Maria? Um, as I was looking through the reading, the whole thing, and looking through the verses, I came to the realization that Sylvia referred to this morning, and that is they're all saying the same thing. Each verse finds different words in a different way to express the same idea. Right. Yeah. So um, I did choose a verse, but before I get there, um, I had some thoughts about the very first verse, the very first two lines. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And the first thing that stopped me was, what is the great way? How would we define or think about what that means? What those words mean? the great way. And some of my own thoughts on it were that it's referring to, um, first I thought it was referring to a state of mind, and then I thought, no, because there are no fixed states. So it must be referring to the process of our mind, or the process of whatever the way that he's talking about is, whatever it is that he means, it's some sort of living moment-to-moment process. And my own thoughts on it were that it's, it's that space in which we are free of the discomforts of mind that come from having preferences or having likes and dislikes or making discriminations, all of the different ways he refers to it in the same, in the various verses. So, um, I then went on, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And Sylvia has talked about this particular line quite a bit. And um, in the commentary book that she's reading about the faith verses, which I haven't read, has pointed out that it means not being addicted to our preferences. But I have a little bit of a different opinion (laughs) about that. I think that if he had meant not having addiction to our preferences, that he would have said that. But that in fact he's saying, he's describing not having preferences at all. And even though, as she has also pointed out, we all live with preferences every day, and we, we need to in order to function in the world, um, what would the state of mind be like if we didn't have those? And in what condition in our lives, in our day, or in any given moment, would put us into a space where we had no preferences? Is it in meditation? only? Or is it walking down the street and wanting an ice cream cone but not knowing if you are free to prefer chocolate over vanilla? (laughs) So it's food for thought and 
I don't I don't know. I mean, don't know mind about <laughs> the ultimate the ultimate meaning. Okay, so now I'm going to go on to the verse that I chose or the lines that I chose as my favorites, and it's I don't know where to tell you that it is, but it's. If the mind makes no discriminations, the 10,000 things are as they are, of single essence. And I think those words are very beautiful. Um, Again, if the mind makes no... Oh, it's discriminations. If the mind makes no discriminations is another way of saying not having preferences, you know, not discriminating between things. And... Your uh, teachings this morning about how everything is so interconnected and all really all one thing or all one process going on moment after moment after moment, it's described so beautifully here. If the mind makes no discriminations, the 10,000 things are as they are, a single essence. And the 10,000 things is a very beautiful and poetic way of saying everything, you know, everything in the world, everything we encounter, everything we experience, everything that exists. Nothing is separate from anything else. So, the 10,000 things are as they are. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to hear other people's exegesis. I like that very much. So, Nancy. Mark also? Mark also. Who else? Nancy, Mark. Next week. (laughs) Uh, The verse I chose is right after the initial two lines. It says, When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. And when I flip the page over, I find the exact same thought expressed from the opposite perspective. When the thought is in bondage, the truth is hidden, for everything is murky and unclear. And I was thinking about, uh, this is something my husband and I have been talking about lately, that that the preferences we have, the preconceived opinions that we have, are a filter between us and experience, a filter between us and reality. And you can have two people have the exact same experience and react in different ways. And Sylvia loves to tell stories, so I'll tell a really quick example of that. Um, My husband and I are avid cyclists, and often we'll come up to a four-way stop intersection and there's a driver to our right who may have arrived there a moment before we did and clearly has the right of way, but they don't go. They sit there and wait. And we sit there and wait. And it drives my husband crazy. And his reaction is, what's wrong with these drivers? Don't they know the rules of the road? They clearly have the right of way. Why aren't they going? If I go and it's not my turn and something happens, it's going to be my fault. And he gets himself very worked up in this situation. And my take on it is quite different. I look at the person who's driving and they're waiting and they're clearly yielding. And my thought is they're just being kind. They're trying to be nice to us. We're on a bike. They're in a car. They're saying, go ahead and, and, Take, take the road the way you should. And so what causes that difference is the filter through which we see things. He has a preconception that people in automobiles are inherently evil. Um, <laughs> and, and I am a little bit more generous in, in my, in my um, preconceptions about, about other people. But the fact, the fact is that even within one individual the way in which you see a situation can change over time. And uh, my husband and I were were, um, driving along East Sir Francis Drake Boulevard one day, and we're the subject of a road rage incident. My husband was driving at a very moderate pace, and someone who wanted to merge was very annoyed that we were going so slowly. And when the lanes split into two, he came up next to us and rolled down his window and started just unloading. It was, it was frightening to me. I had, when I saw him roll down his window, I had initially rolled down my window thinking he wanted to say something helpful to us. And then he started out like that, and I rolled the window back up. And it was very, very frightening very, very frightening to be the recipient of his rage. 
This was while I was in the essential Dharma class, and our homework for that period of time was to do a compassion meditation. <laughs> and I chose as my object of the compassion meditation this gentleman who had exhibited this rage. And when I would sit in meditation at the beginning, um, what, would came, what came to me was the fear and um, a little bit of anger that, that he had, had, without real justification, acted that way. But as I did this meditation day after day after day, my perception of the situation changed. And as I was pouring out my compassion for this man, I was thinking, how sad that he is so angry. How sad that a, a small incident like this, somebody driving in front of him, can provoke a reaction like this, and how awful he must feel, and how terrible it is for that person to be that way. So my, my perception of the exact same situation changed over time. So two people can have two different filters that affect the way they perceive reality, um, one person's filter can change over time. To expect that we're going to get to a point where we have no preconceived opinions, where we don't have greed or hatred or delusion in some degree, I think is, I mean, it's an aspiration, but it's not something I expect to achieve in this, in this lifetime. And so as an, as an interim measure, if you have to choose between love and hate as a way to approach your experience, I would say choose love. I'm having such a good time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Aren't you having a good time? Pleasure. Mark. Well, I agree with everybody that's gone before me. <laughs> that leaves me nothing to say, so I... <laughs> Um, well, like what you were saying, Nancy, I mean, it seems like uh, it's a state we're unlikely ever to get to. Although sometimes I have a moment, but it goes like this. You know, in that moment, I'll, for a moment, I won't like or dislike this person or this situation, but God, it so I, it's possible to experience it, but it's not possible to live in it, at least as I've observed it. I'm sorry, I'm not speaking into this thing, so maybe not everybody heard me on, on that. I'm sorry. Very loud when it's close. I'm sorry. Better like this? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Hard to get it in just the right place. Um, yeah. It seems to me also that... Uh, how to say this? Whatever we feel, it's just not true. <laughs> so, you know, you like them, you hate them, you think it's a good idea, you think it's a bad idea. What do you know? You don't know anything. I mean, because all of this confusion is actually in charge. So, you can't possibly, can't possibly, can't possibly get it right. So that's really partly it. But I, I also want to go on and tell, if you'll allow me, yeah. tell, uh, describe a little experience I had, which goes off in a somewhat different direction. A uh, day or two ago, Larkin and I, my wife, went to the Berkeley Rep to see a play, and we parked in the garage across the street. And Larkin has to do something before she can be totally ready to make that move across the street. So I'm just standing there, waiting. And I'm looking down, and, and I see down on the floor of the garage, there's this puddle of water. And I'm looking at that and wondering, why is there a puddle of water there? And I'm looking at the ceiling. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up to me who works in the garage, and he's carrying a dustpan at the end of a stick, and he's got a little broom, and his job is to, clearly to walk around and pick up trash and, or sweep it into his thing. And he notices that I'm not going anywhere, so I guess it makes him feel that he can talk to me. So, and probably hasn't talked to anybody for a long time, so he starts talking, and I can't stop this guy. I mean, not that I really want to, because I don't want to say anything, I'm just passing this time. And he explains to me how this water got there. And he's pointing out, in addition, he's saying, you know, look at all those cracks in the ceiling, this is where the water comes from. Oh yeah, you're right. 
And he says, you know, I have to come here every day, and I, uh, this building has gotten to be old. And in fact, they're going to replace it. They're going to tear it down next year and replace it because it's no longer safe. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate to have to come here to work because I think, God, what if there's an earthquake? It's going to be all over. I don't know. He goes on and on, and, and he's talking, and he has an accent, this guy. I, I cannot tell you what this accent is. And I'm amazed, really, when I think about it. I'm understanding him perfectly. I mean, how is it that here is this guy that talks in this totally murky way, and yet I have no trouble getting it. And he's actually, what he's saying is very intelligent. It's smart. He's right on. And that's kind of the thought that uh, I go away with. I think, uh, what's different? What differentiates, differentiates, differentiates this guy from me? Not really nothing. I mean, I could be that guy with my little broom and you're talking to some fella in the garage. And, uh, and, actually, and I also have the same kind of reaction to the uh, street person outside who sells the street sheet. There's actually two guys, they take turns, and, but I have talked to both of them and I have the same kind of feeling. You know, these guys are really smart. I mean, they're in this particular role, but me, I'm in a particular role. These are just roles. I could be them, they could be me. And then occasionally I think, well, wait a minute. I'm educated. I, you know, I'm actually smarter than these guys. That's why I'm where I am, and they're where they are. No, no. And then I have to think about that and say, no, that's not true. <laughs> it really is just a total accident. And um, I'm afraid that takes me away from the great way. But uh, make the smallest distinction. Well, in this case, I interpret that to mean uh, if I made a distinction between them and me. So for a moment when you can see that there isn't one. Thank you very much. I think it's wonderful that we share our own insights, you know, that Everybody, those are all very important insights. Even in the whole story, Mark, as you're telling it, you never know what's going to happen next if the mind is open. You know, that really, I've been say, I've I've been telling everybody for the past few months that the best thing I learned in that month-long retreat was teaching my mind to say, "Hmm, I wonder what's going to happen next." Not reacting unthoughtfully to this moment, but appreciating it. And wonder what's going to happen next. Larkin's taking time, so this, so that, so this, so that. And every once in a while we see... You know, when you said that it's an accident that they would... Sometimes I think to myself, everything is an accident. And when you, no, an accident makes it sound like it's a bad thing. It's, everything is a coincidence. And the people sometimes say, what a coincidence. But everything is a coincidence. You know, that everything that happens, that happens at the same time as something else, is a coincidence. And it's because of everything. There's some line from the Buddha somewhere that says, because of this, that, or something like that. But me, and, and it's just like what Mark was saying, that you never know what makes this or that, and how did this guy end up here, and how did that guy end up there, and why did that guy yesterday, why did Luis Suarez bite this other person, and what made up that whole biting, and how far back, and how much had to do with soccer culture, or his family, or his background, or his this, or his that, or whatever. How much everything is just, wow. You know, I think that, anyway, just to end on Susan's comments, they were raised. It's amazing, this whole thing. Listen, let's take a little poll. How many people here are going to be here next week? That's quite a lot of people. How many people who were here today and didn't share will share next week? We'll do a homework. 
<laughs> so far. <laughs> How many? That's two. Come on, Nancy. Three, four, five, six. Okay. <laughs> Neither do I. Neither do I know. That's the famous Kierkegaard. That's the famous Kierkegaard uh, joke. That which is a joke because Kierkegaard was not known for a cheerfulness. But anyway, where in some conversation someone said after they had met one day, "I'll see you next week," and Kierkegaard is said to have said back, "I will see you next week if." As I leave your house today, a tile does not fly off the roof and hit me on the head, and a, and a horse does not run me over while I'm crossing the street. So, we, And we say it, we say, God willing, and the creek don't rise. I'll see you next week. So everybody has a way of knowing. My mother-in-law used to say, we should live and be well. I'll see you. I mean, that was not a satisfactory answer for me. Say, Mother, are you coming for dinner on Sunday? And she would say, in a kind of a superstitious way, we should live and be well. I'll see you on Sunday. Which means, you know, God willing, I'll see you on Sunday. Which is not a helpful answer if you're planning a meal. You want to, <laughs> you know, that. But, but in, a, in a certain way, she's right. You know, God willing, and the creek don't rise, and I don't get run over by a horse, and a tile doesn't come off the roof, and whatever. Then all of us who said, in that case, if all those things don't happen, then those of us who are here today who rose, raised their hand. <laughs> and if not, we'll talk about other ones together. Come, don't stay away because of the homework, for goodness sake. So... Uh, and have a very good week. May all the coincidences work out well for you this week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.